0: Thank you, Amy, and a special thank you to Tim and to Bill for stepping up and filling in with music as Alex and Janine are traveling this weekend for their anniversary. And so, uh, wish them well as you see them when they come back. But thank you for the gifted men who stepped up and, and uh, blessed us with their ministry. I appreciate that so much. Let's uh, look, if you would, uh, for for those who have children through grade four, they can be dismissed to children's church if you'd like them to be. Uh, You can keep them with you if you'd like, of course. It's always good to have kids in here. Feel free to keep them as early as you want and teach them how to do that. If you'd like them to go, you can find them downstairs at the close of our service. Just follow the herd. You know what's music to my ears is that they're excited to go, aren't they? They can't wait to be with their teachers, and I'm so glad for that. We have so many gifted people there. God's plan for a healthy church, study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. That's been our, our study verse by verse over the last several years, confidence in the future, confidence in ministry. About halfway through a PBS program on the Library of Congress, Dr. Daniel Bornston, the Library of Congress, the Librarian of Congress, brought out a little blue box from a small closet that once held the library's rarities. The label on the box read, Contents of the President's Pockets on the night of April 14, 1865. And since, of course, that was the fateful night of Abraham Lincoln's assassination, every viewer's attention was seized. Bornston then proceeded to remove the items in the small container and display them on camera. There were five things in the box. A handkerchief embroidered A. Lincoln. A country boy's penknife, Spectacles in a case repaired with string. A purse containing a $5 bill of Confederate money. And some old worn out newspaper clippings. Clippings, said Bornstein, were concerned with the great deeds of Abraham Lincoln, and one of them actually reports a speech by John Bright which says that Abraham Lincoln is, quote, one of the greatest men of all times, end quote. Today, that's common knowledge. The world now knows that British statesman John Bright was right in his assessment of Lincoln, but in 1865, millions shared quite a contrary opinion of him. The president's critics were very fierce and many. He was... In lonely agony, many times, reflecting on the suffering and the turmoil of his country, ripped to shreds by hatred and cruel, costly war. There is something really touchingly pathetic in the mental picture of this great leader seeking solace and self-assurance from a few old newspaper clippings as he reads them under the flickering flame of a candle all alone in the Oval Office. Sometimes confidence is hard to find. Sometimes days don't tend to bolster our security in Christ, and so this chapter we're studying is helpful, really so helpful in some of those days, perhaps more than others. So Paul, in this passage, has shared his heart and gives us some waypoints to help us know who we are and what we have because of a faithful God where we can place our confidence in second corinthians chapter 5 verse 18 is where we're going to start it says and all these things are from god now we saw that paul begins that section last week and this is his way to really underwrite his comments here in this passage by reminding his reader of the reality that is close to his heart every good thing that he's covered every uh, all the confidence he has in death and in future judgment and in his conscience, and especially in his guaranteed transformation, and all the changes that go with that transformation are all from God, and they are based on the faithful love of a saving God. It's hard sometimes for us to be confident in in some of those things and in this faithful love because we live in a day of unfaithfulness. Men can't be trusted. We learn fairly early in life that people do not keep their promises. Whether you're talking about Uh, individuals or or companies or nations. It's really the same thing. They're not worth most of the time what they say they are in terms of their integrity. Uh, Husbands, many times, are unfaithful to their wives in the vows they've made. Wives, unfaithful to their husbands. Uh, Children are unfaithful to live out the principles their parents have taught them. Parents are often unfaithful to raise their children as they should. Employees are unfaithful to Uh, live out the promises they make to their employers and employers are unfaithful to follow through with the obligations and responsibilities they have to their employees and it just goes on and on and we would add of course to that that Christians are frequently unfaithful to God though God is never unfaithful to them And none of us can claim immunity to the sin of being unfaithful, the sin of of being untrustworthy and and living up not living up to our promises Uh, the only one in the entire universe who is always faithful and always keeps every promise is God And that is a a very important truth because it's upon this faithfulness of God uh, that we have the confidence to believe what we believe. In order to have confidence in the future, God must be able to be trusted because our eternal destiny is at stake. Would you agree? It is indeed refreshing by contrast and certainly blessed to lift our attention above the level of unfaithfulness around us uh, to our wonderful God who is always faithful. In, in describing Jesus' millennial reign on the earth, Isaiah describes Jesus as having this, having faithfulness as the belt around his waist. I love that passage. I've told it to you many times, but that's the idea of his faithfulness as the belt which binds up all his other attributes. So the garment there, of course, is his attributes. The belt is faithfulness, and it just binds up all his attributes. Faithful is he in everything. That's a great word picture. Deuteronomy 7, nine. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindnesses to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Both his faithfulness and his love are here as proof of his promises, and we see those mentioned again in in two more passages, really, and you could just go on and on here, we won't this morning, but I wanted to start this way to kind of encourage you upon whom we trust and why these why these securities that we have in confidence are so important, and why they re- we can rest so securely in them? But Lamentations chapter three verse twenty-two says, "The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease; for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning." And then the prophet says, "Great is Your faithfulness." In Psalms thirty-six five: Your loving kindnesses, O Lord, extend to the heavens; Your faithfulness reaches to the sky. And I guess we would have to cling to those concepts, don't we? I mean. Great is your faithfulness, your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Because we really have no way in human language to, to describe the infinite, faithful, loving kindness of God, do we? So we just say it just reaches to the sky. We say uh, they never fail, they never cease. Great is your faithfulness. They're new every morning. And that helps us to understand just a small snapshot of our passage that we're studying here in Paul's statements. Because he expresses it as the love of Christ controls us in Second Corinthians 5.14. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, the the writer says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is what? Is faithful. Where we've placed our hope, where we've placed our confidence, as opposed to Abraham Lincoln, who was short on confidence during the course of his presidential career, would have to pull out maybe a speech made about him to remind him that he was doing the right thing to stay on course. We hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering because our confidence is in someone who is always faithful. God makes a promise, He's faithful to fulfill it. And those are just samples of a really foundational issue in the scriptures of which all the pillars stand, and that's the faithfulness of God. The saving God who loved us and had a plan. And that love controls Paul, and in Ephesians chapter three, verse 14, Paul explains his desire for all men to know something about this love, this faithful love that the Lord always gives, and the power as a result of being reconciled to God to be about the ministries that he's given. It's a great parallel passage to our current study. And this again refers to that degree idea that we've mentioned many times. These things are true about you, and then really it's just a matter of degree how you act on them, which backs us up into what? It backs us up into building material, backs us up into house that we build and, and, a, and a solid conscience knowing it's informed correctly, and all those things. So this degree idea I've mentioned many times, perhaps that was uh, not clear in your mind, but that degree, he says to believers, I pray to this end, he says in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knee before the Father. In other words, I'm going I'm to talk to the Lord about you, uh, about this thing, uh, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. And what does he request? That he, that's God, would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Now stop right there. Paul says, I'm praying for you that you'll know the full power of the spirit, the full strength of the operation of the spirit, that you would really know the power of the spirit working in your life. Why? And, and this is the idea, again, of degree, so that uh, these just build on one another, so that if you're, if you're going to really see the spirit operating at full strength in your life, then, you, then you're going to have to get rid of the sin and the disobedience in the flesh and the selfishness and all of that and, and, and to the degree that you do that the spirit of God is able to operate at full strength uh, some, same idea is our passage you have been redeemed and, and you're different right and you don't live for yourself anymore now you live for him who died and rose again on our behalf and that's that idea of your response to the matter of degree uh, that's how you build that house and that's how you inform your conscience so you're not living for yourself anymore so he says so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith what's he mean by that well that word dwell there is to feel at home it, it, now here's the thing, it's, it's not that you haven't been reconciled, you have. And it's not that you don't have all of the Holy Spirit, you do. It's just that the Spirit isn't able to operate at full power with sin and disobedience in your life. Because the idea then is that Christ isn't at home in a heart that rebels. See, the Holy Spirit is there, but not able to function. Scripture calls that quenching of the Spirit, uh, dampening it down, making it unable to respond like it should like he should, because, why? You've allowed things in your life uh, in a degree that has squelched that work. Now, let's keep building. Here's the result of allowing the Spirit to work in power. Christ is at home. Here's the result of Christ being at home. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in what? Love, right? Whose love? So this is the same idea as our passage, see? When Paul says the love of Christ controls us, uh, we're not talking here about our love for God. Look at verse 18. And may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. So what does he want us to know? What, what does he want us to experience? The love of Christ. Okay, again, just like in our passage in Second Corinthians chapter 5, we're not talking about our love for Jesus, which we certainly have, but is fickle and prone to waver. But who? Christ's love for us, which is not fickle, always faithful. So, the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So, filled up to the fullness of the love that God intended for us, a secure feeling that's beyond any reason we can give, and controlling and, and, and major motivating factor in our lives. Now, verse 20 says, Now to him, so Paul again is, is praying this for the church, so he wants them to live this way to the maximum degree. These things are true about you, beloved. Uh, you you have been reconciled. If you're born again, you, you have the Holy Spirit. You, you have the spiritual gifts. All those things are there. It's just the Spirit isn't able to operate at full power. So what Paul says, I want to pray that you'll know this love of Christ because that's going to compel you. That's going to constrain you. That's the same idea Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. So in other words, he can do it. He desires to do it, and he wants us to know it, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, as we saw last week. But beloved, Christians that walk in disobedience and sinful patterns, see, this is the problem, okay? This is where it won't be to the degree that it needs to be, see? They don't have the power at work in them, and, and the controlling factor of the love of Christ has been subdued. That may be why we have churches filled with people who never take on the ministry of reconciliation. And even though they've been trained to go and spread the gospel, even though you understand what the gospel is, there's so much other things in your life. You've quenched this constraining love of Christ. You don't feel that. You don't feel the closeness that you would like to feel to God. It's not that you're not. It's not that you're not reconciled. It's not that you don't have the Spirit. You do, but disobedience in your life and, and rebellion and and, uh, and sinfulness in your life will, will squelch this work. See, you know all the facts. See, you're reconciled to God. You have a home not built with hands waiting for you. This is our passage in Second Corinthians five. You have a future judgment waiting for uh, waiting for reward. You've been transformed. Yes, you have a hope of glory, but you don't know that subjective ministry of God's Spirit affirming in your soul at its most intimate point that they belong to God, that you belong to God. See that same love is not able to control and constrain and and no lo- and you're not you know keep you from no longer living for yourself because you are living for yourself. See. That's why Paul says that, you know, that we may no longer live for ourselves. It's not that you will or you won't. You will not live for yourself anymore, but to, this, to the, uh, the degree that you're going to do it's going to really depend on your volitional response, right? We've always said over and over again, God's promises are for us, not for him. If he tells us to do something, then we are to respond in obedience to do it, not just say, well, you know, I'd really like to not live for myself anymore as you go and do things for yourself, see? And so quench that spirit and that's so that degree of response is very minimal. And again, you're backing into what your conscience is going to tell you. You're going to back into what building materials you're going to use. You're backing into the house you're going to build. You're backing into the judgment seat of Christ. And so all these things are important and they play an integral role. And these these things I'm talking about now are your volitional response. See, We've talked about your position, but I want to just take a moment at the beginning of our sermon to make sure that you understand how all that goes. So there had to be an obedience to walk in the Spirit, which is why Paul says, I want you to understand this constraining love of Christ and know the height and depth and, and width and all of that and so that you'll respond correctly to it. See. So this is obedience to walk in the Spirit, obedience eh, to desire and strive to walk in obedience so that Ephesians 3.18 says that we can comprehend, look at verse 18, that means to really seize hold of, to grasp and make your own, the reality of your new life with, with all the saints. So, you, along with every other redeemed person, Paul says, "I want you to grasp the reality of this, comprehend with all the saints as the breadth and length and height that all that God has planned for your future expressed to you in the face of, uh, of the God who is a saving God, Christ. see verse nineteen, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. verse twenty now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory." in the church, and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So the Lord has a desire to work through you to accomplish the single task that he's left you here to do. So now, we, we understand that that volitional response belongs to you. Paul prays for the church in Ephesians that they will understand this marvelous love of Christ and move then, be constrained by that love for Christ to them, as Paul explains in Second Corinthians 5, because of his substitutionary death on your behalf responding to that amazing love that that, uh, overshadowed all of your sin and all of that, and while you were still enemies with Christ, Christ died for you. That is our desire. It's our desire to work underneath that understanding of that love. He's left you here to do some stuff. So back to our passage then this morning, 2 Corinthians 5.18. You can look there if you'd like. Now, all these things are from God. All these marvelous things based on the faithful love of God that never fails Always does exactly what he says he's going to do. Those things are from God. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And we have seen, uh, it was God through Christ reconciled us to himself. And, and the word reconciled is our, in our passage five times. And so obviously we've seen it. It's the key word. Katalax antos, erist active, participle here. Literal meaning is to exchange typically money for or something of value to complete a transaction. Here in the Aristance, it's a past act uh, in which the subject participated. So God exchanged on our behalf the correct value for us. A deal's been struck and the required price was satisfied and and you can see that that this language is just very full. And and this was our first confidence in ministry principle if you missed it last week. Number one, we need to be about the ministry of reconciliation. It's very simply just boil down what's being commanded here. We serve a God who's a savior, He's not a reluctant Savior. He's willing to do whatever it takes to convince men to be reconciled with him and to, and he's made it clear that we he would pay whatever the price that, that would be required. And just as God was our example of not re, uh, regarding people according to the flesh, he's also the example of what it looks like to have a ministry of reconciliation. And we're going to see that in the face of Jesus. And, and what we are to do then is to tell sinners that they can be reconciled to God. And I, I truly believe, That if we're not quenching the spirit in our lives and and thus the love of God wants us to know and understand uh, what prompted him to sacrifice his son for our sins, then that's exactly what we'll do, see. If you're not quenching that spirit, you will respond in that way because you've been redeemed. And if you understand even a small portion of what that means and how you've been taken from the kingdom of darkness and placed in the kingdom of his beloved son, then that is a motivation to continue to walk in that way, see, and to make sure other people know it. So we understand that God, through Christ, has already reconciled, that's the aorist participle is used here, to himself, us to himself. He has broken down this tremendous barrier which alienated us from him. And, and what that barrier was and how it was broken down, Paul describes in verses 19 and twenty through 21. So let's look at verse 19. 2 Corinthians 5 19, in your copy of God's Word. Namely, he says, namely, now all these things are from God, as verse 18. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, obviously, verse 19 springs off of verse 18. Verse 18, now all these things are from God. Reconciled them to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So Paul then, in verse 19, is explaining this ministry that we're to do by giving us an example. That's why he starts out with the word namely, which is just a way to say that is, or for instance. So reconciled to himself himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation, for instance, or namely, or that is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So Christ is the face of the saving God. And we're just going to apply that as part of, of a competence and ministry principle in just a minute But first we have to deal with the universalism again, just like we did in verse 14 Remember back in verse 14 you can look back there just in I won't put a slide up Just look back at verse 14 for the love of christ controls us Remember we read this having concluded this that one died for all therefore all died. There's the there's the issue, right? Therefore all died Who were the all to whom the reference was made? Did everyone die with christ? Uh, does Paul mean all people, the totality of the human race, uh, died with Christ? Well, he can't mean that, obviously, because if you died with Christ, then you are what? You're redeemed, right? Because that's what Romans 6 clearly says. If you died with Christ, then you are raised with Christ, okay? So he can't mean that, So, because the whole of the human race isn't redeemed. There's no universal salvation. And as we saw, uh, that it appears to mean that when Christ died, the sins of all humanity, of which He was the head, were born on him, and you can say to the unredeemed, your sins and their corresponding shame and punishment have been laid on Christ by God in order to open up a way for salvation. You can say that to people because that is precisely what has happened. And then the plan of salvation is incorporated in the hearts of individuals by a volitional response of repentant faith. So, This is important, and it's important to make clear because this is the great proof that God is a saving God and that he has brought his plan to save us to fruition through the work of Christ's death on the cross and his raising from the dead. And in the same way, then, when we look at verse 19, we can deal with this universalism thing again, okay? It says in verse 19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And the question is much the same. Did he really reconcile the whole world to himself? Again, it can't mean that God has actually reconciled the entire world to himself he's or nobody would perish in hell see and and there would be no need for the warning rather that word world here i think includes the sphere of ministry that was where the ministry occurred and humans were the target of the ministry of reconciliation that Christ accomplished. And so Jesus demonstrated this, the concerned nature of a saving God, as we saw last week, in the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son. Obviously, he's about pursuing lost people. Jesus said he came to seek and save that which was lost. Is, is everyone who is lost found? No, right? But the ministry was accomplished, and as we saw in verse 14, the sins of the world were laid on Christ, opening up the way of salvation. Now, just as a footnote, and I don't really want to muddy the water here, but there were some comments over the last couple weeks, so I want to say this. And if you have more questions, I'd be happy to talk about it. So people always want to talk about limited or unlimited atonement, neither of which are biblical terms. Jesus' death in itself, beloved, now remember this, had unlimited and infinite value because he was the infinite Son of God. So, as that is the case, as we pointed out, then his sacrifice was sufficient to pay the penalty for the sins of the whole world, mark this, whatever number of sins that may have been, because that's the whole point of verses 14 and 15. And all of them were future, all of your sins and those who come after you were all future at that point. You see? So because he is the infinite son of God, Jesus' death in itself had unlimited and infinite value because of who he is. Now look back at, at several verses in Second Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And again the point is so clear, but John three sixteen again just makes it very, very vivid for us. Verse sixteen says, For God so loved the world, who did he love? He loved the world. Mark this, as we said, the realm of humans, the place where humankind lives, that he gave his only begotten son, same idea, God gave his son over to death as a substitutionary sacrifice in the place of those who deserved it. That's the world. Okay? This is God through Christ reconciling the world to himself that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. Here's how it works. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So continuing our footnote to express that in a different way. If, if God decided to save everybody apart from a volitional response, mark this, no further sacrifice would be needed, right? Because he was the infinite God able to cover an infinite number of sins. So if God wanted to just give universal salvation to everyone, no other sacrifice is needed, right? So when we talk about whether his atonement or whether the work on the cross was limited in its value, in its essence and its sufficiency, it is what? What? unlimited. That's right. See, the question then is not really about the fundamental merit of Christ's death or its capabilities, because we already know what those were. That's unlimited. Even, even the gospel offer is unlimited, as we saw in our biblical support for the understanding of the verses we just read in John 3.16. That being said, it's important to note then that in the final outcome, no matter what you may say about limited or unlimited atonement, it only applies to those who believe. You see? That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. You see? Now, that's the end of that footnote. Before we go any further, and I'm jumping ahead just a little bit, our second confidence in ministry principle looks like this, though. As we think about God being in the world, reconciling the world to himself, God, rather, God being in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, we get our second confidence in ministry principle, which is really describing what a ministry of reconciliation looks like. So please follow this. As Christ is the face of a saving God, we said that, we established that last week. We understand Christ is the face of the saving God. He's never he, he is a reconciling God. And he's never expressed himself more as a reconciling God than to send Christ to earth to live and die in our place. And I think you see that so clearly. So as Christ is the face of a saving God, and he was in the world then, our our ministry then, if we want to have the confidence for the future, and in the same way that Christ went into the world, we go into the world to sinners, to the realm of sinners. We are now the body of Christ, we understand that, we're the face of Christ, we're the hands and feet of Christ, we're the voice of Christ, we go. Okay? So I just want to make that general observation, because that's really what Paul's saying here. Namely, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, that's what he said in verse 18, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and so I think it's important to connect that. Okay. If we've given us the ministry of reconciliation, for instance, then he says God was in Christ in the world, reconciling the world to himself, I think it's important for us to recognize Then in the same way, I think that's Christ's exact purpose for saying he's come to seek and save that which was lost. He was taking a lot of criticism for being among sinners. He's like, listen, this is why I'm here, to seek and save. So I think it's important to recognize if we understand who we are as the body of Christ, that we're doing that too. Now, we'll get more explanation here in just a minute, but look back to the next part of verse 19. Namely, he says, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself... Not counting their trespasses against them. I'll stop right there. So the question is, how is it that God can have reconciliation with sinners? Well, the only way he could do it was not counting their trespasses against him. That's what the verse clearly says. So let's look at that. Romans chapter 4, verse 7. As Paul is speaking to the church in Rome, he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That's a great place to be, and that is how reconciliation works. The Lord is obviously not going to be able to count trespasses against those who He's going to reconcile, and there's got to be a way He's going to do that. And we're going to see that in just a minute. First John chapter uh, one or two, verse one says, as John writes, he says, "My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin." And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, someone who speaks on our behalf, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, beloved catch it, but also for those of what? The whole world. I don't think it can be said any stronger than that. Jesus himself is the satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Now again... This comes down to an individual response by faith. We understand that. The only way God can be reconciled to man is if sin is out of the picture. And there's there's only one way to get sin out of the picture. He must deal with it. He has to judge it. Once it's dealt with, then reconciliation takes place. Because God is a saving God, and he's not reluctant, and no one has to plead with his reluctance. And he has provided the way of reconciliation by judging the sin of all mankind on the cross of Christ, therefore offering or thereby offering forgiveness. And that takes us to the last part of verse 19. Let's look there. Namely, for instance, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. This is a marvelous part of this verse. I'll, I'll just tell you, I'm excited to even share it with you. This, this is really our next confidence and ministry principle. It's number three, if you're keeping track. We are to tell people to accept the forgiveness offered by God and secured by Christ. This is just obvious, right? But this is exactly what Paul is saying to the church. And so we want to we respond to it by understanding what he's saying. And this is the point of Jesus' command to his disciples, including us, in Luke chapter 24, verse 46. He says, And he said to them, uh, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. So our mission then, as we understand Jesus' Jesus's great commission, as we understand then Paul's response here, he has given to us the word of re- reconciliation. Our mission is then to reconcile men to God. And we do that as the ministry of reconciliation, according to this text, by preaching the word of reconciliation. Okay, this is my job. This is your job. That's our task. This is our responsibility. When you walk out the door, it becomes your responsibility to, to speak the word. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. A committed. theminos. That's that verb. Eris, middle, participle. That's a completed action. God literally laid. This is a literal ver, uh, interpretation. He's laid something on us. A responsibility. And it's a past completed action. So when did he lay it on us? Well, when we were redeemed. That's when we were reconciled. And at that point, he laid on us or committed to us, what? The word of reconciliation. That takes us back to the previous verses, right? And what did he lay on us? A responsibility. What responsibility did he give to us? The word of reconciliation. So mark this, beloved. That word logos implies, catch this, a logical, reasoned approach. Okay? A logical, reasoned approach. And we saw that just a moment ago. Eris middle thermimos. Just means that God gave this ministry to you. And, and mark this. This is so great because the way this tense is. He gave this ministry to you acting on his own interest. That's the whole middle, middle voice. Isn't that so cool? Namely, mark this. He's a saving God. And he gave you the word of reconciliation, acting on his own interest, which is what? He wants all men to be saved, and you get to play a part. And The ones he saves, in other words, he wants involved in the plan set forth before the foundation of the world, see? And I think that's amazing, the word, the way those words work. God is doing this on his, acting on his own interests. He's given you the ministry of reconciliation, acting on his own desire to see all men saved. We take up our part of of the plan by announcing that God has been reconciled to sinners through the blood of Christ and the enmity between hopeless, wicked people and a holy God can end. And you have become the vehicle for his own glory and his own purpose to make sure that message is delivered in a logical, reasoned way. That's the whole idea. It's not Mysterio. It's Logo. It's very clear. It's not It's not something out there that you can't really grasp. Well, I don't really know how to explain it. Well, listen, beloved, this is the very basic brass tacks of being a believer is to be able to explain that there was a huge gap between sinful man and a holy God and he has bridged it with Christ and all of the sin of the whole world was laid on him and paid for and now a way has been made for you to respond by faith. That's a logo. That's That's the word of reconciliation, a reasoned understanding of how you were redeemed. And I would, I would go so much so far to say that even our first graders and second graders in Awana can make that clear. See, so I think as adults, we should easily be able to grasp those concepts, okay? And I know that you can, and that's why our first and second and third graders can. But this is very simple. It's not some complex theological items that you have to grasp and somehow boil down to this simple. It is very simple, isn't it? Now, as we study it, because we want to study and show ourselves approved, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, we study this background because it's cool to know this, that God acting on his own purposes has given us this word. But the word itself is very straightforward. And you've become that vehicle for God's own glory, for his own purpose, to make sure that message is delivered in a logical, reasoned way. You are not responsible for the response. You don't have to, you have to wrestle through whether it was a limited atonement or unlimited atonement. Why? Because we already know that Christ, the infinite one, provided infinite atonement. So the capacity of him to redeem is not limited at all. And so you can say what Paul said in Acts chapter 16. See, in Acts 16, 31, he says, they said, remember after the jail, is a big, you know, it rocks back and forth and all the gates come open and, you know, the jailer thinks everybody's gone and, and Paul said, no, we're all here, you know, don't, don't worry, don't kill yourself, you know. And then they asked, what must we do to be, be saved? Here's the word of reconciliation. There's tons of examples. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. He explained that there was a big gap between God and the sinfulness of man. See? It's very straightforward. to do what it tells us must be done in Romans chapter 10. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. In other words, we've told you enough that you understand this logical, reasoned approach to salvation. This is how salvation must occur. It is the word of faith which we're preaching, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Now there's lots to that, right? What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? What does it mean that God's raised him from the dead? Why did he have to die? That's the word of reconciliation. But those are not complex items, beloved. Okay? You will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. So what do we do? We go out there and we tell sinners to believe. Verse 11 says this. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. You're not going to get to the end of your life, into salva- uh, 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 your saved life, when you see Christ and say, man, that really wasn't worth it. I wish I could go back and fix that, Right? That will not be the case. Whoever believes on him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, right? All socioeconomic boundaries are all bridged, right? We don't look at people at, like, the, like the world looks at them. We don't look at people like the flesh wants to look at them. You're either far off or you're close, aliens and strangers, or you've been brought near, see? Jew, Greek, doesn't matter, for the Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches, for all who call on him, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a universal invitation, isn't it? Now, will all call on the name of the Lord and be saved? They will not. That isn't the point here, is it? The point here is that the capacity to save is not limited. And Christ has provided that forgiveness and the sins of the whole world were laid on him on the cross. So you can say in good conscience, your sins have been laid on Christ. And by faith, you can receive salvation from him. So how can we say that? Whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, Jesus has borne the sin of all men and his body on the cross. Jesus has completed the work of reconciliation on his part. But people aren't going to know that apart from your part of the plan, right? Which is verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear? Here's your part. Without a what? A preacher. See, in a, and I realize that's, that's my job as a vocation, but it's everybody's job, see? And Paul is speaking to the church in Rome and saying, listen, that's everybody's job. And Jesus certainly didn't limit it, did he? You are to go and make disciples. And so in a sense, this is everybody's job. And I know that you know this, and it's not, beloved, again, not whether I will or whether I won't. You will, and now it's only a matter of degree, Okay? To the point, as we started at the very beginning, that you understand and are constrained by the love of Christ. And that's what Paul's prayer was in Ephesians, that you may know how wide and tall and deep it is. And to the degree that you do it then, so goes the building of the materials that you use, building materials you use and your confidence in your future judgment. Then he says in verse 15, he says, how will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news to of good things. And now you know who that person is, don't you? Who is it? It's you. And it's me. We are called to give the word, which is a reasoned, logical response to people. Concerning the hope that's in you. And then verse 16, Paul says, however, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has has believed our report? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So in other words, don't be discouraged just because you give the logical response, the word of reconciliation that some don't believe. Because even Isaiah said, who's believed our report? Not as many as we hope. And so, again, reconciliation is the story of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Nobody has to plead with God's unwillingness. And you know what's amazing about this whole thing is that sinners are responsible for their own rejection. A logical word goes forth, it's been made clear. And they're responsible for what they do with it. And so Paul's next word takes us into verse twenty. Look at that, Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty. Look at your copy of God's Word. Therefore, and so he's just kind of moved from verse fifteen all the way to verse twenty, just pretty much using therefore or namely all the way along. So everything builds on the previous statements. He just kind of works his way along. Therefore, and the context then of this next verse is based on an understanding of the previous verse, because we've been given the word of reconciliation. As that's the case, we are to give a reasoned response. How are we supposed to act? Therefore, we are what? Ambassadors for Christ. That's what we do. And plead with them to be reconciled. That's our task as ambassadors. We represent the king of all the universe in this world. You're an ambassador. It's as if God has sent us as his personal agents into an alien culture to beg the people to be reconciled to him. That's precisely what he's done. The word ambassador says presbuomen, or you get Presbyterian and all of that. Usually has to do with those who lead, uh, and, and it applies to those who lead the church often. But here, present active indicative, this is your reality. You are ambassadors. You represent Christ, As a leader, someone who can lead people to follow Christ, you do the work of a representative. The king of all kings has picked each and every recipient of his grace, beloved, of reconciliation and forgiveness to represent him. And we do it, and he has his own self-interest in mind when he gives us this ministry because he wants to see all men saved. And so that's our next confidence in ministry principle, if you're copying them down. If you want to be confident for the future, be about your job of representing God's interests, His purposes, and His will among those who have yet to be redeemed. That's what you do as an ambassador, and even in this broken world, that's what an ambassador does. It represents the interests and the purposes and the will of the One who leads the United States. So, even even greater capacity, with much more future glory. And eternal consequences you have been given and I have been given this job. And then he just compounds this. He says, listen, he says, therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ as though, so just in case you were unclear, as though God were making an appeal through us. So in other words, we speak and we say what God would say. And this too, we live in such a way that we would create no roadblocks to reconciliation. And that was the whole point of the earlier part, see? That you, can li- you may be an ambassador for the king of kings, but you may be living in this foreign land this, where you're an alien and a stranger, and you may be living in such a way that you create a roadblock to everything you're trying to say, and that's what we don't want to do. You're an ambassador, and as though God were making an appeal through us. In other words, nothing in our lives that would discredit our call or doubt our transformation, see? That's what it means to be an ambassador. Paul said it in this way in 2 Corinthians 6.1. We're going to see that just just next week. We'll start this, Lord willing. But he says this, and working together with him, see, just kind of calling back to this last couple of of verses in the previous chapter. Working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. That's the whole point of this, this emphasis here, right? You're an ambassador as if God were making an appeal Uh, through you. So, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited. So here's the deal. See, he said, remember when I reconciled you, and at the acceptable time I listened to your call for salvation. For anyone calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So I did this, in the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. You're this ambassador, see. You've been giving this word of reconciliation. So verse 3 says, give no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. As you're doing your job, make sure your life in such aligns in that way, see. This is the day of salvation. Don't let the opportunity pass by to declare it. And don't do things in your life by which you could be called out. That's what it means that ministry will not be discredited you won't be there 's no occasion for you to be called out to discredit the job you 've been given to do first John chapter two, verse ten. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. You speak clearly the word of reconciliation you don 't undermine it by what you 're allowed in your life, which may call into question your own relationship with the king and Then I think he gives the church a, really a sample sentence Paul does, and, and he will follow up with an illustration of verse 21, and that's how we're going to close today. But gives a sample section. Uh, look at Paul's sample. Very simple from the last part of verse 20. So he says, Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. Now catch this. We beg you, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Just kind of a sample sentence. That, that expresses your own attitude. Okay? Not, not in there condemning the world. I think, you know, sometimes... I don't think this church does it, but I, I've been to churches that do. Spend more time bashing, bashing unbelievers than we do speaking the word of truth to them. You know, guess what? They live like they live because they don't know Christ. That And that's how we should look at them, right? From a spiritual perspective, not from the world like, oh, man, just throw them all in jail or what a, what a slime bag, you know, all that it's a great attitude. We beg you, this is Paul's sample sentence, we beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Now people say, well, maybe he's saying that directly to the Corinthian church. It's possible that he is making an appeal to the church and that he's kind of disconnected that from, from what he was doing before, the training, uh, of what ministry looks like and the confidence of ministry. But, and I think you can take it in, the, in that way, a very small part, but I don't think that's the purpose. Paul's just saying, this is what I say. And we're getting his heart here, so I think we just can look at it this way. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You make the message that clear. Christ died for sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scripture. Remember that? I gave that to you of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15, 1. And Jesus has borne the sin of all men in his body on the cross, Jesus has completed the work of reconciliation on his part, as though Christ... And though Christ's substitutionary death on the cross in your place, through that, God has made a way for you to be reconciled to him by confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart, and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I just kind of summed up the verses I just gave you in simple sentences. That is the gospel. That's the word of reconciliation. And you're to plead with people... To be on behalf of Christ, to be reconciled to God—that's what Paul means when he makes the statement as an example to the church. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled. And this word of reconciliation, coupled with our ambassadorship, is like what we see in Acts chapter six, verse seven. The word of God kept spreading. What word, beloved? The word of reconciliation, of course, right? The word of the gospel that God has made a way. The, The word of God kept spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Because the word was going out. And what were they doing? Begging people. And if you read anything in the early part of the Acts, you see them begging people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, don't you? And the response whereby men and women are redeemed, where they die with Christ and are raised with Christ, where they're made new, where they enter a right relationship with God as, as described as obedient to the faith. In other words, they responded the way the word of reconciliation makes it clear that they need to respond. That's called obedience of the faith. You do what you're supposed to do. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. I believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. That's obedience to the faith. See, Romans chapter 16, verse 25, it says, Now to him who is able to establish you, According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is made manifest. What do we know has been made manifest, beloved? Christ in the world, reconciling the world to God, right? That was a mystery before, but now the Messiah came and that became clear. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, in other words, not only has Christ in the world desiring to reconcile the world to to God, it's always been this way. See, that's what it means. Uh, by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God. God's always been a saving God, always been a reconciling God, and scripture and the prophets have made that clear, and we looked at all that last week. Has been made known to all the nations. So Christ in the world, reconciling the world to, to God, and all the scriptures beforehand and the prophets all said the same thing. And now it's been made known to all the nations, everybody. And now God's plan of redemption has been accomplished through Christ and the proper response to incorporate this gift of grace is leading to obedience of faith. See, Our word, we desire to lead people to obedience of faith. We go out, and it's like God begging through us that sinners be reconciled to him through obedience of faith. See, And then this next verse, which illustrates Paul's sample sentence in verse 20, is verse 21. Look there, and we're going to close with this. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the heart of the whole thing, isn't it? Paul gives his sample sentence. How can God reconcile the sinner? How does he deal with sin? How does he satisfy his just and holy condemnation of sin with a full deserved punishment and still be able to show mercy to sinners who deserve no mercy. And beloved, this is, this is part of the logical, systematic understanding of the word of reconciliation. And it has to do with substitution. See, It's already been indicated us, to us back in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, one died for all. Remember, we talked about substitution there. Verse verse 18, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. That's substitution, right? We had to do something with sin, and so he reconciled us through Christ. Verse 19, namely, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And then verse 21, he explains it, and he gives a sentence that really sums up this marvelous plan of a saving God. And if you know Christ today as your Savior, you're sitting here today, and you, you do not have a relationship with him, it would be clear by now whether you have come to faith in Christ. It would be clear. Okay? Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. You have understood the reconciling act of God through Christ. You've owned your sin. You've confessed it. You've repented of it. And you desire to be saved and you've expressed that to God and he has fulfilled his promise. You are born again if you've done that. If you have not done that from your heart, then you're not born again. So catch this. This is the work of substitution. This is what has to happen. Starts like this. He made. This is God again. God's the reconciler. It's God who designed it. It's God who planned it. Nobody had to beg for him to to have mercy on anybody. He's always been a saving God. He made him who knew no sin. Now, who's that? That's not hard to figure out, right? We don't have to whittle it down from a couple of candidates down to the one, okay? There isn't a large pool that we have to pick from. There's only one. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, speaking of Jesus as the better high priest, the writer is carried along to say this, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus, okay, he made him who knew no sin. So that's Jesus, the sinless one, born of a virgin, no Adamic headship, he's the only one who's worthy, so he made him who knew no sin to what? Be sin on our behalf. You understand that, beloved? If you're not born again, he made him who knew no sin, this is Jesus, to be sin on your behalf. In other words, all of your sin became Christ's. Okay? Now, here's the question Does that mean that Jesus was a sinner when he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf? On the cross, beloved, Jesus was still wholly sinless, undefiled. He was just as sinless on the cross as he ever had been in eternity past. Okay? He was not a sinner before the cross. He didn't become one on the cross. And as some teach, he didn't become a sinner and then have to go to hell and pay the appropriate payment and then come out. No. Okay? Just as sinless on the cross as he ever was in eternity past. Okay? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So he didn't become a sinner on the cross. First Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Speaking of Jesus, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, what's he talking about? This is, this is the cross. This is leading up to the crucifixion. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. So if he didn't become a sinner on the cross, then how did he become sin for us? What? Sacri- Here's a question. I hope you answer the question. What sacrificial animal is most often referred to when referring to Jesus? A lamb. What kind of lamb? Spotless and pure. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.19 that we were redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And I think the sacrificial system is the easiest way for you to understand what it means to be he made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf. What do we mean by that? The sacrificial system. Well, of the millions of animals that were slain in a sacrificial system in the Old Testament none of them had committed any of the sins of the one who offered the sacrifice true and yet they were treated as if they were the guilty party to make clear how awful it was to disobey God and to help him the nation understand that without the shedding of blood there can be no what which means to be forgiven So, as Paul illustrates what reconciliation means, he's carried along to help us understand, and there are two parts. Here's the first part. If you don't catch anything else I've said up till today, if you're not sure you're born again, understand this. Because this is the understanding you need to have in a reasoned word of reconciliation for you to respond volitionally by faith. On the cross, Jesus did not become a sinner but God treated Jesus as if he had personally committed every sin ever committed by every person who's ever lived. And that gives you a better picture of atonement, doesn't it? That's a little overwhelming for me. And I had to write that sentence like eight times before I could really express I could express it like I think it should be expressed. Because if we know the infinite forgiveness of Christ and the potential there to forgive every sin, then we have to say it some way as big as we can possibly say it. It's kind of like saying, how faithful is God? Well, it reaches up to the sky. I don't think we can grasp it in a sentence. I don't even think with a glorified mind someday I'll be able to grasp it in a sentence. It means that, beloved, if you catch this, okay... That means that all of the wrath against all of the disobedience fell on Christ. And that's what substitutionary atonement means. That's the first side of reconciliation. And you have to understand that all of your sin in its entirety and all the punishment that goes along with it fell on Christ. And God punished him as if he had done all of your sin. And here's the other side. When you come to faith in Jesus, God treats you as if you had only done Jesus' righteous deeds. How, in, how is that possible? That's a marvelous thing to think about. He imputes, that's the word, he gives you a new identity. And what is it? Righteousness. When you place your faith in the atoning work of Christ on the cross... He gives to you in His grace righteousness. And He took all of your sin when Christ was on the cross. Your sin was taken care of. The sins of the whole world. And it's on Him. And now you are in a position to come to faith, but it wasn't free. He gives to you a new identity. It's called righteousness. And on the cross, Jesus wasn't a sinner, but God regarded him as if he was, as if he would committed all of your sin and every other sin of every other sinner. But because of the cross and your repentant faith, you're not, you are not unrighteous. God's treat, you're not righteous, but God treats you as if you were, see, because all of your sin have been punished. So he's able to take the sin out of the way. That's the only way he can reconcile man, see? And they've been dealt with, and, they, and that payment that they required has been satisfied. That is the word of reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. Here's another way to say it. He wasn't the sinner, and you're not righteous. But God covered him with your sin. And treated him as if he would committed it all. And then he treats you as if you've only done Jesus' righteous deeds. Otherwise known as the gospel. And it sounds good now, doesn't it? Because we forget how really good it is. Just like when we look at the sky, we forget how marvelous it is. This is a marvelous thing. This ministry of reconciliation as if we were pleading with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And that, beloved, is something you can have absolute confidence in because it was accomplished by a faithful God who always keeps every promise. Speed us, Mr. Pur. I'm well, very grateful for our time together. For the closeness that we have, the bond that we have in Christ, it becomes so much more vivid when we talk about that. What our bond is as Christians in Christ that supersedes all of our personal differences and the fact that we we like different things, and we have different opinions. Our bond in Christ is so marvelous. It's this reconciliation that we have that. All of our sin was laid on Christ. He paid the punishment for it, even though he didn't do any of it. And his righteousness was imputed to us. And the love of Christ constrains us. And that's a marvelous love. To no longer live for ourselves, but to live for him who died and rose again on our behalf. I'm speaking to you. If you've never come to faith, it doesn't matter how long you've been in church. If you have not understood the depth of atonement at what needs to happen for you to incorporate it, then today's the day of salvation. Now is the the time place your faith and your hope in Christ. He's already dealt with your sin. You can receive forgiveness, righteousness imputed from God to you, even though you're not righteous and not righteous by faith. Our sin, debt, is taken away because it's already been paid for on the cross. Confess to him now your sin. You're not telling him any secrets, beloved. He already knows all of it. Confess your sin. Repent that you're sorry for it. Confess in your heart that Jesus is Lord. He's in charge You believe he's in charge of you. You give up your right to your own life to call the shots. He bought you. You therefore bought with a price. Glorify God in your bodies. Now you can. He bought you. He's the Lord. He came and did what he said he came to do. You are who he says you are. Both on the negative side and the positive when you come to faith believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead for the death of Christ. His blood was the substitutionary atonement. It was the payment that was satisfactory. And his resurrection proved that. Death had no hold. He lives today at the right hand of the Father and waits to come back to catch the church away. And we look forward to that day. And we understand that very clearly. And you can understand that now for the first time if you confess and repent and believe. If you did that today, before you go, it doesn't matter how long you've been in church, beloved, don't let that stop you from making that most important transaction. Let us know that you did that. There's a response card in front of you. It'd be our joy to know that you've come to faith and to help you grow. It'd be our joy to, to show you the next steps of walking with the Lord and all that he has planned for you. As Paul said, pray for you that you may know the love of Christ may walk in such a way that's pleasing to him, it'd be our joy to show you that and disciple you. The Great Commission calls it teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded. That's what we'd like to do. That's why we're here. For the rest of us, Father, who've come to know your son, we're so grateful to be reminded of what it looks like, what atonement looks like, what it means for him to be, he became sin on our behalf. Father, I pray that um, as we walk out today, we walk with a spring in our step, refreshed and knowing who we are in Christ and the simple job that you've given us to do. And if we don't have those clear words, we haven't put that together in our mind, let's not not wait any longer. Let's go home and write that out so that you can make a clear presentation. this is the reason we're left here and God has given us this job in his own best interest. Why? Because he's a saving God, and you are his, and now he's given you this job to do. Help us be about that, Father, a church that is concerned about the lost and says things uh, that make it clear we're his ambassador. It's not easy, perhaps because we've laid some decoys up around us, and people don't know who we are, but Lord, I pray that we'll be about changing that whole perspective in whatever sphere we walk in, it might be clear who we belong to, an ambassador living in a foreign land, representing the the desires and the purposes and the will of the one who sent us, namely, a word of reconciliation. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.